ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Professor Clark Johnson. Dr. Johnson's current research interests are at the intersection of consumer and organizational behavior. He's currently studying topics such as the impact of artificial intelligence on business research, intercultural negotiation and sales, cross-cultural advertising, and the nature of employee commitment, engagement, and job embeddedness. Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. In other episodes of the podcast, We've discussed brand activism, looking at survey data concerning Gen Z and millennial opinions and stated desires, and also through the academic lens of Shoerju Mukherjee's research. And your research is really the perfect complement and missing piece because you looked at constituency building through the political activation of consumers to serve an aim or interest of the brand itself, sort of like activating uh, a consumer lobbying effort. First of all, is that a fair way to describe it? Am I am I getting it right there? Yeah. So I, I would say constituency building really is um, targeting, you know, influencing policymakers by uh, getting together a group of. Uh, in our case, we're looking at consumers uh, to try to put pressure on policymakers to influence legislation or, you know, even the enforcement of legislation. So uh, it's definitely uh, kind of related to to um, social responsibility, uh, but it is a little bit different in that it's in the political realm. Um, right. And it, but it would be also it, it there is definitely a component which benefits the brand directly. Correct. Or is it broader than that? Am I am I? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the, I think, most important uh, contributions of, of our research, especially for marketers, is that we do find, um, you know, our, our last hypothesis is that actually engaging in a political activity on behalf of a brand can lead to uh, downstream positive effects on uh, brand loyalty, which obviously is one of the most important outcomes for, for marketers. Right. Right. So when I was reading the study, I thought of two different examples uh, of of this kind of behavior, sort of my local solar energy company sending me an email to request that I email the governor about some legislation concerning solar energy, sort of this one bucket, which felt like, oh, this is they're doing the exact same thing that you wrote about in your in your piece. Um, And then the other was about Facebook making its case to users about why Section 230 shouldn't be changed or Google manipulating search results so that all of the search results initially are like, oh, here's why Section 230 should stay just the way it is. Now, I guess my question is, in the first, in the solar energy case, it was an explicit action to be taken. And in the other, it was more like shaping opinions, which may down the line result in action, but it, it wasn't as clean are we really only talking about when we are taking the action? I mean, should I carve out my thinking around like Section 230 and Facebook and Google? I think uh, this this paper really does encompass both of those uh, examples. Um, so, uh, I you know, obviously, I think Google and Facebook are trying to shape public opinion with the idea that down the road, it can put pressure on lawmakers to right. uh, to change, you know, Section 230 with with um, with what they need. 
Um, so I, I think even if it's not a direct call to action, um, down the road, they're hoping to build a constituency that can uh, change legislation. So if you're a brand and you're thinking about it and you think down the road, I may need this, this is laying foundational aspects that could benefit you. So it's Absolutely. not so it's not only building that constituency, but it's also going to build um, things that if you see down the road a potential for an existential threat, this is something that you can do to um, protect yourself, for lack of a better exactly. term. Yeah. In your research, you conducted a number of studies that fed into one another, and then they came together to form your conclusions. So let's walk through the structure. And first, you conducted a literature review. And what did this entail? So we looked at first how constituency building has been used by by brands, by, by firms and marketers. And so we found that Previous research has only looked at this in terms of targeting shareholders, so asking shareholders to you know, contact representatives mm-hmm. and to uh, as far as employees as well. So asking your employees to contact uh, representatives. And so they found, you know, uh, the percentage of your portfolio that the, the sh- company shares make up, that's going to make you more likely to engage for employees, things like employee commitment that's going to increase your likelihood of, of becoming active. So we see these more recent examples like you just talked about in the last few years. And so there was kind of a gap in the literature as far as targeting consumers. What are the motivations that facilitate consumer activation in, in political activities. Right. Uh, Okay. And so second, you conducted qualitative interviews with people who had been activated consumers, for lack of a better term. And you synthesize this with your literature review using the lens of social exchange theory. Can you explain what social exchange theory is? Yes. So social exchange theory is a theory that was developed in, in sociology uh, that really explains relationships between people, between, in our case, an, a consumer and a firm. And so it's really looking at the the reciprocity between the individual and whoever, you know, the other relationship target. Um, it's been used widely in marketing to, you know, explain the relationship marketing and how even if you're not getting a uh, transaction, a purchase from a consumer um, investing in that consumer uh, can lead to, uh, you know, the norm of reciprocity down the road and expectations that the consumer might return your investment. Um, and so basically, social exchange theory says that people kind of weigh the cost and benefits before engaging in any certain behavior. And so, and specifically with social exchange theory, how it differs from other theories is more of a focus on non, uh, I guess, intangible exchanges, exchanges that there's no set price um, and it might not be kind of a spot transaction. So um, you might do something for someone with the expectation that down the road, they are going to return that that investment in the relationship. So it's an Um, interaction that generates an obligation, but it's not a negotiated exchange. It's a Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so in, in this, we're looking at this contacting a representative as an investment in the relationship with the brand with the idea that down the road, the brand is going to somehow be able to return that, that effort. Right. Okay. Now these two things led you to identify six factors that interrelated and formed a conceptual framework for how consumer activation worked. What were these six factors? First of all, uh, brand loyalty, pretty straightforward. Issue salience, which is the importance of the, the issue at hand to the consumer. Value congruency was the third one, which is 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 the issue or the, the brand stance on the issue congruent with the consumer's values. 
task complexity is uh, how difficult or how much effort is involved in the, the call to action. Information seeking is whether or not the consumer you know, seeks out additional information on their own. And then we also looked at the issue type, which is, is the issue at hand a business related issue or is it more socially oriented? So those were the six factors we looked at in the following studies. Great. So your team then developed these five hypotheses about how these factors worked together. And so let's cover those at, you know, 60,000 feet. Your first hypothesis, brand loyalty had a positive association with consumer activism. And the question here I had was, chicken egg, do you need to have brand loyalty first or not? Is there a threshold of brand loyalty or can it be a cold start? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, And one I, I think in later hypotheses that we we kind of look at well, when does brand loyalty matter and when does it not? Um, so we we did expect overall to find that you know any established brand loyalty that the brand equity that the firm has would make it more likely that consumers would become active on behalf of the of the firm. However, in in the subsequent hypotheses hypotheses that we'll discuss, the brand loyalty might be more important in certain situations and it might not matter in other situations. So uh, again, you know, the answer there is really contextual. It it depends on the issue at hand, I would say. I see. I see. And the type of issue that's moderating uh, social, socially oriented versus business related. I thought the study was really focused on these sort of quasi-existential business challenges and motivating consumers to aid in the solution. Can you give an example of of what would be a socially oriented but business that that I guess I, I was having trouble understanding those. Yeah, so that that factor was really a outcome of our our interviews. Um, so in our interviews, we found participants who participated in two very different campaigns, political campaigns. So one was very much related to the health, the ongoing health of the firm, whereas the other one was more socially oriented. It was, if you remember back when the government, the federal government was shutting down, um, this didn't necessarily have anything to do with the health of the of the company, uh, but it was more of a social, you know, more, more related to social responsibility, I would say. Uh, but there was still the idea that their consumers could put pressure on lawmakers to help keep the government open. And in our in our studies, we used the we kind of manipulated the issue type by looking at gun control, which was the the social issue, mm-hmm. versus uh, minimum wage regulation. So that was very much related to the ongoing health of the of the organization. So those are, I guess, the examples of the issue two types of issue types that we looked at. Right. Similar to issue type was the salience. Can you d- define issue salience? Yeah. So issue salience is. Uh, a fancy way of saying how important is the issue to you okay. uh, personally. And so we basically, hypothesis three was that um, even if the issue is maybe congruent with your values, but the issue is not very important to you, you're not let, you might not be as likely to engage in the call to action as if it is congruent with your values, but also very important. So we look at the interaction between issue salience and value congru- congruency, kind of expecting that if those two are high, then we really would see an increase in consumer activism. Right. They amplify one another. Right. Was one more influential than the other? 
Um, yeah, so I would say uh, the direct effect of value congruency was was stronger uh, at the, as far as the direct effect. However, issue salience didn't moderate this like we expected. So kind of the takeaway there is that both of them kind of need to be there oh, okay. to really increase the consumer activism. The next hypothesis related to information seeking and, and value congruency, and I found this piece so interesting. Can you explain what it is, what you were looking at? Sure. Yeah. So here we're looking at the negative relationship between task complexity and consumer activism. So there are various ways that a firm could ask their consumers to engage in the political activity. It could be something as simple as checking a box for an e-petition. In in the real world examples that we uh, were doing interviews for, they simply ask their participants to like uh, a Facebook post. And that would count, they would uh, collect all those names and send it to the regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be very low task uh, complexity, very easy to do. And then more high task complexity actions would be writing an email to your representative, doing a phone call, or maybe attending a rally. And those obviously require a lot more effort. So we would expect a negative relationship between mm-hmm. task complexity and activism. However, looking at the literature on task complexity and kind of combining that with our interviews, we saw that if consumers went out and sought information, additional information about the issue on their own, they might might be more likely to engage in the more complex tasks. So if they read an article, educate themselves, they might be more likely to write an email as opposed to, you know, just being willing to check a box. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the same, the same hypothesis, I guess, for value congruency is that if the issue is congruent with your own values, you're going to be more likely to do the more complex tasks, uh, which research has shown those are the more effective in changing legislation. So, Right. Well, I, I just thought it was really interesting, the business about sort of the level of, of third party, the level of research, and a, a bit of a dogleg to this conversation. But I couldn't help but wonder if we step back, and do you think that anytime people do the research themselves or feel like they're doing the research that makes them more vested in, in whatever it is. Yeah. I I think that's a fair, fair, um, I guess, assessment. Um, Definitely in our interviews, the participants discussed a lot about third party kind of objective information that they received. So one of the kind of managerial implications of our study is it's not so much the amount of information that brands or the firms give directly to their consumers about the issue. Um, It's more the amount of information that consumers are able to get on their own because they know that's probably more objective than information coming from, you know, someone who's involved with the issue. So if you're a manager and you're thinking about this, if you can source a third party that, that, agrees or supports your point of view or delivers the message, it's going to be that much more compelling to the person. So you serve it up. Yeah. So, and that's what we did in our experiment is we gave them the opportunity to read up to three additional neutral articles that presented both sides of the issue. And when they did read at least one of those articles, they were more likely to engage in the activity. I did have a question if there was any potential downside. Let's say there isn't value congruency or salience. Is there a risk that it could degrade brand loyalty, that it could backfire? Yes. And so I would say that's probably a direction for future research that we did not you know, really look at it in this study. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of looking at the 
maybe the interaction between value congruency and information seeking, you know, if it does go against your values and the information that you're seeking does seem to be kind of consistent with going against the brand, uh, maybe that information seeking could could backfire. So yes, I would say that's definitely an interesting area for future research as well. Right. So if, if brand loyalty goes up after the activity and extends over time, and we think back to the whole chicken egg question, so if regardless of where you start, the brand loyalty increases, is it a straight line? Does it increase more steeply for people who already had high brand loyalty? Does it plateau? Was there any, how do we think about that relationship? Those are all really great questions that, I, um, <laughs> that again, we, we, because of the, the nature of, you know, this is kind of an, an exploratory mm. uh, study in this area. We did not look at changes over time. Uh, mm. Basically in our study, we just looked at two weeks after the decision on whether or not to engage in the political activity. How did brand loyalty change two weeks afterwards? Right. Um, so definitely uh, one of the kind of recommendations for future research in the paper is that, you know, we look at uh, changes over a longer period of time and hopefully impacts on downstream behaviors as well, not just attitudes. So, Right. Well, I, I'm, if you were to, to guess, if you were to form a hypothesis, because you do do all this consumer research, what would you anticipate? Would you educate a guess or do you think it's really you just need to see the data? Yeah, um, I could see it would not surprise me at all if there is. Um, obviously, this is just proposing ideas yes, here. Proposing uh, I, ideas, not going to hold you to it. <laughs> Absolutely. It would not surprise me at all if if the if it does kind of tail off, the effect does tail off after you know a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would. I think your your other question about those who are originally high in brand loyalty versus those who are those who are low in brand loyalty. I would expect maybe that those who are low in initial brand loyalty would see the biggest effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are definitely very interesting research questions. Uh, maybe follow up study that we'll we'll conduct as a team. <laughs> right. Right. So you had all of these hypotheses and you found these things and I kind of need a drum roll sound. But if you were to to create a summary statement, what's the 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 big takeaway? You know, one of my favorite parts of, of conversations like this is is what it all means for practitioners. And we've touched on it a little bit, but the the so what now what? And right. you beautifully lay it out in your article and everybody should as nice as you are in, in setting it out. But um, can you share with marketers that what these big takeaways that they should fold into their thinking are? Yeah. So I think probably, you know, the, the uh, elevator pitch would be to think of your corporate political activities more as a stakeholder activity, I guess. And really, as you, you know, develop relationships with consumers, think about including them in your political activities as our research shows, this can have positive benefits on downstream changes in brand loyalty. Technology like social media is making it you know, much easier for firms to engage with their consumers and to build these constituencies. Um, as I said, the two examples that we looked at in our interviews were over Facebook. So it's you know, very simple to, to share information and to link to these third-party resources that we talked about. I would say kind of the subheading there would be to understand your consumers, the brand equity that you have established and how that may impact the likelihood of of consumers engaging in in activities. Um, So that can help managers, especially PR managers with deciding whether constituency building versus another strategy like financial incentives or information sharing, 
which of those strategies would be most effective in changing legislation. And then uh, lastly, I would say, know your customer's values. It's pretty intuitive, but if the legislation or your firm's stance on a legislation is not in line with your consumer's values, it really probably doesn't make sense to use constituency building as a strategy. Right. And, um, so probably use one of the other types of political activities like lobbying or um, sharing information with legislators. Right. Right. I, I also was curious, is it relevant for domestic and international brands? Does that matter? Yeah. So that was very interesting. Um, we did actually manipulate in our, in our experiments, we did manipulate the brand to be either a domestic brand or a foreign brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this just made it into a, a footnote in the paper. Uh, there was no difference between the domestic brand and the foreign brand. Hmm. Um, so we were kind of expecting maybe a liability of foreignness that right. people would be more likely to engage for a domestic brand and might be a little uneasy with you know a foreign brand trying to change regulations um, domestically. But we found that there was no difference uh, between the two. So again, we kind of uh, posit this as a direction for future research that. Well, um, certainly I, it makes me think of TikTok, you know, and, right. and what's going on in social media and regulation. And um, certainly I know, you know, initially when TikTok brought over the gentleman from Disney, I think they were thinking, oh, I can use this, you know, person who understands American lobbying and stuff, right. although he's departed. Uh, this is very interesting that, that that didn't have an impact. So interesting. Yes. And we also suggest, you know, we only studied it in the American political context. Um, so oh, oh, that's well interesting. So is it? Ah, uh, yes. Right. Other cultural contexts, um, other, you know, political American con- uh, American companies overseas might there might be a slightly different take on that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, for instance, in, in France or something where you have um a feeling about uh, American companies. I had talked to a, I interviewed a business book author about bringing um, discount luxury goods stores, like those outlet stores. He, he right. built them, you know, he brought them to France and, oh my goodness, the stories of trying to bring that kind of business, which seems so obvious here over there, really different because of some right. of the cultural differences between, you know, how people work there and how people work in the U.S. Um, yes. And, and consumer animosity, right? So if there's right. if consumers have animosity towards a, a specific country, uh, perhaps that liability foreignness would be there. Um, well, I guess there's a congruency then with the, the company that they may be grudgingly participating with that company, but uh, it, it's, it's, so it's understanding your constituency, right? Um, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I really appreciated that you shared your time and I, I thought your article was great. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.